Hey everybody, Mark is here. Thank you so much for the fantastic response we got on the first episode of No Dogs in Space. Here, for your consideration, is the second episode, just in case you haven't checked it out yet. Of course, listen to part one before you listen to part two, but if you want to hear parts three and four, go subscribe to No Dogs in Space. We're going to be covering so many bands this season. We're going to be covering Suicide, The Damned, Joy Division, The Ramones, The Misfits, The Cramps, and many, many, many more. So please, subscribe to No Dogs in Space. Thank y'all very much for listening. your daily dose of acid this morning <laughs> you know it baby before every single performance that's a little known fact that most people don't know about me mm-hmm. is that i take two tabs of acid before every single podcast good acid being b12 <laughs> welcome to no dogs in space everybody i'm marcus parks oh and i'm carolina hidalgo and we're continuing today With the story of the Stooges. Yeah, the second part is always the meteor part (laughs) of a sandwich. It really really is. Like, on the second part, we're going to be covering uh, the first two Stooges albums, along with fucking everything else that happened around those albums. Yeah, and a lot of it did. (laughs) So when we last left the band, the Stooges were still experimenting with the stage personas that would come to define them as one of the most confrontational and exciting live groups of the late 60s and early 70s. The thing about artists like the Stooges, who do something totally new, is that those groups don't appear just fully formed on stage from the outset. And usually, when you're doing something new, the road to genius is pretty goddamn rough. See, when the Stooges first started, while they did see that the hippie scene was essentially vapid and empty, Stooges saw that shit immediately. (laughs) They still had the hippie-like optimism in their experimentation with the avant-garde. Because the Stooges started off as an avant-garde band. Oh, yeah. Don't forget the Osterizer. How could I ever forget the Osterizer? (laughs) (laughs) It belongs in a museum. (laughs) (laughs) But the Stooges were starting to realize that blind hippie optimism wasn't getting them or anyone else anywhere. And after that bad acid trip we talked about in the last episode, Iggy Pop in particular was realizing that what people did respond to when it came to his performances was brutality, aggression, and a fair amount of nihilism. He called his music a savage blowtorch of nihilism. (laughs) I mean, that's pretty accurate, I'd say. Yeah, oh yeah. It's more than a fair amount of nihilism. (laughs) But, like, nihilism in 1969, like, that shit wasn't selling. But they were doing it anyway. Uh, You know, I heard in a BBC interview that Iggy Pop did in 1976. So Mm -hmm. this is, like, after the Stooges. Oh, yeah. That's way after the Stooges. And uh, he said that Iggy seems to do what Jim needs to and can't bring himself to do. That sounds fucking awful. I don't know what that means exactly. (laughs) I got a feeling. Well, we're definitely going to explore that concept quite a bit in episode three. Because at this point... 
he's still tinkering with it. He's still he, he hasn't quite given himself over to Iggy Pop because Jim Osterberg and Iggy Pop are two extremely different people. Oh right, because he used to wear loafers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I do love. We'll also get into uh, David Bowie's nickname for Iggy Pop, which is just Jimmy. Jimmy. <laughs> Come here, Jimmy. I like it. <laughs> and don't forget, this is still, like I said, 1968 in America. Besides all the good time vibes, you also had the fucking Vietnam War. Conflict. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you still had the draft. The draft was sending thousands of kids to their death every fucking month. It was still a very real threat to every young man in America if you weren't in college or if you weren't rich enough to get out of it. And the Stooges... They were in neither of those situations. That's right. I mean, Iggy did go to college, but he only went for a semester. Because he was a musician. Well, yeah. He doesn't need to go to college. He didn't, he didn't want any rules. <laughs> People tell him when papers do. <laughs> so Iggy was actually caught in the midst of all this and being drafted because uh, Jeep Holland, who was managing the Prime Movers, which mm-hmm. Iggy was in at the time, Jeep Holland said uh, that he actually did manage to get a lot of musicians out of the draft. He counted about 20. Wow. Yeah. So the version that Jeep says is that Iggy stood in line with the other men when they were being tested for everything, and they were told to take off their clothes all the way down to their underwear, but Iggy got completely naked <laughs> and grabbed onto his dick, <laughs> and he was yelling like, no one is touching my dick. No one's touching my dick, man. No one. <laughs> and they had these people in the army like who had to like try to pick him up. They literally picked him up on each side, and they could not pry his arms open. Open because you know he's a drummer he's arms of steel oh yeah no we're strong <laughs> <laughs> they could have tried prying his hands off of his dick it didn't happen <laughs> and jeep holland said the whole thing lasted 30 minutes that's a long like They're 30 like, minutes doesn't seem like a long amount of time but 30 minutes of someone trying to pry your hands off of your dick while you're screaming and squirming around 30 minutes is a long fucking time so obviously they told him like just get out yeah <laughs> Iggy's version in his autobiography, I Need More, uh, he said he got naked but still made sure to jerk off a little to get hard. (laughs) And when someone noticed, he started yelling and shaking over and over again. He just acting all cracked out. He's like, I'm really scared, man. I'm real scared, scared, man. I get hard when I get scared. I'm sorry. And they asked him, like, oh, well, why are you scared? He's like, because I'm gay. (laughs) And having men in their underwear around me is just making me really, really gay. (laughs) He kept yelling like, help me. (laughs) And that lasted an hour and a half. (laughs) You just got to keep going sometimes. Just got to keep going. And so Ron Ashton, he also had to go up later, like a couple years later, since Mm. he was a little younger. Um, But all he had to do was stay up for a couple days and show up drunk. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, you know, even though all this is like, it's funny, it's kind of goofy. I mean, remember, these guys were having to do this shit to escape certain death. Yeah. Because I'm not sure how long Private James Osterberg would have lasted in fucking Vietnam. <laughs> oh, not very long. Either that or he would have been like that surfer dude in Apocalypse Now. <laughs> and he would have just wandered around high and just gone home. So, in order to channel all of this negative shit... 
Jim Osterberg created the character of Iggy as we know him today. See, the wild man persona of Iggy in those days pretty much just lived on stage because Jim still had to get the Stooges to rehearsal every day. The rehearsals were only 20 minutes long. <laughs> That's like an errand. You've never been in a band. <laughs> <laughs> No. no. It's difficult. It's very <laughs> difficult. <laughs> but more and more, people were starting to see that Jim wasn't coming around so much, making Iggy the dominant personality, which was admittedly more fun, but also much more destructive. And really, what Iggy Pop did is pretty much what Bowie did with personas like the Thin White Duke and Ziggy Stardust a few years later. It's just that Iggy Pop did it first and only did it once. But we'll get into the relationship between mm -hmm. David Bowie and Iggy Pop on part three. Oh, and don't forget Chris Gaines. <laughs> Thanks to Iggy Pop, we have Chris Gaines, the alter ego of Garth Brooks. How could I ever forget Chris Gaines? Remember that Saturday Night Live where it was Garth Brooks hosting and Chris Gaines, musical <laughs> guest? I remember Garth Brooks in Empty Nest. And he, he seemed like a nice guy. You know what? He really is a nice guy. I've heard good things. <laughs> So while Jim Osterberg was fine-tuning Iggy Pop, a young man from Elektra Records came to Detroit to see the MC5. That man's name was Danny Fields. Of course, Ooh. Danny Fields was immortalized forever in the fantastic Ramones track, Danny Says. Danny Says we gotta go, gotta go. Yeah, and we'll definitely get into uh, the relationship between Danny Fields and the Ramones when we do our series on the Ramones. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> Danny Fields, he's a really smart guy. Mm -hmm. uh, who, he was deep into the arts and music scene. He wrote for magazines, and he DJed a radio show for WFMU. Oh, I love WFMU. I still listen to WFMU in the shower almost every day. You do? Yeah, I absolutely love WFMU. Danny Fields, his career as a magazine writer, uh, <laughs> he was actually the guy that broke the Beatles' Bigger Than Jesus story. Yeah. <laughs> You know, he was friends with uh, Linda, Linda McCartney mm -hmm. and, like, really good friends. <laughs> and then they're all hanging out together, and Linda goes, you know, it was Danny who did that. And Paul's like, really? Really? You're eating my food. 
Yeah, and it wasn't even like and it, I think it was in like Seventeen magazine or something like that because Danny Fields started his career in magazines for like teenage girls, right? Like yeah, teen- it's a date. Yes, like de- first date or some something weird like that. But yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's how he started his career was in uh yeah the the teen magazine. So all you guys out there working in uh, careers, you're like, ah, eh, this isn't quite right for me. Just keep building, keep going, keep going. Because he eventually worked with Jim Morrison. Uh, the Velvet Underground, the Modern Lovers, and later discovered the Ramones, like you said, and managed them. Uh, but the thing about Danny Fields is that he is the most likable guy ever. He's so likable. I just want to, like, I, I, I keep looking around at, like, every old Jewish man on the train and thinking, like, is that Danny Fields? I hope it is. <laughs> I wonder, could I talk to him? Like, could I see? Because he still he lives here in the city still. Yeah, yeah, yeah we might have. <laughs> yeah, he's a New York City guy, and he came to Detroit to check out, and eventually signed the MC5 while working for Elektra Records. Remember, he was hired as a publicist by Jack Holtzman, the director of Elektra Records, mm-hmm. because and that was when Danny was labeled as like the company freak, the guy who finds what's cool out there, what the kids are listening to. And that was his actual job title was company freak, <laughs> publicist, company freak, head of promotions, yeah, but company freak. <laughs> That's the funny thing is that company freak just meant it's like, yeah, I'll smoke a joint at my table. I don't I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> That's how cool I am. I'll totally smoke a joint at my desk. <laughs> tell, try to tell me no. So cool, man. <laughs> and the reason why he was hired for this is because uh, Electra Records until 1966 were just mainly only uh, folk music. Folk music and classical music. Yes, and that's when they made a ton of money with the classical music. They uh, they started another label under Electra called Nonsuch Records, mm-hmm. and that it made a European classical music. So they had all this extra money because it sold so well. Jack Holtzman's like, you know what? Let's get into something psychedelic. Actually, I would like to play a little bit of what Electra Records was putting out before the Doors, before the Stooges, before all of that cool shit. Some of the folk records that they put out were absolutely insane. <laughs> One of the guys that Electra had on their label for two decades is a guy named Oscar Brand. His albums include Body Songs and Backroom Ballads, Volumes 1, 2, and 3, Bring a Song, Johnny, which was just all children's recordings, Rollicking Sea Shanties, Body Hoot Nanny, The Wild Blue Yonder, Give Him the Hook, or Songs That Killed Vaudeville, Boating Songs and All That Build, Sports Cars and Songs, Every Inch a Sailor, Out of the Blue, and Tell It to the Marines. <laughs> I wanted wings till I got the goddamn wings. Now I don't want them anymore. They Oboe. taught me how to fly, <laughs> and they sent me off to die. Well, I've had a belly full of war. You can save those bloody zeros for the other goddamn heroes. Distinguished flying crosses do not compensate for losses. A buster. I want the wings till I got the goddamn things. Now I don't want them anymore. That's pretty good. That's some pretty good anti-war music. I don't know. Let's do psychedelic instead. (laughs) Yeah, all along the Watchtower, I would say is better. (laughs) (laughs) I would definitely, I would listen to that again rather than I wanted wings. But that's you know, but that's the type of shit that uh, that Electra Records was putting out for twenty years. And yeah, and it worked. Yeah, It it worked very well for them. Yeah. 
And then when they decided to go psychedelic, that was going to work too, right? <laughs> Immediately. So Danny Fields gets hired by Electra. He knows everyone, including uh, John Sinclair, who mm-hmm. we talked about before. John Sinclair goes down to the radio station, WFMU, and says, hey, you got to check out this band in Michigan. Danny's like, all right, I'm going to Detroit. I'm going to check out this band, the MC5. So when Danny went to Detroit in September of 1968, he'd never heard of the Psychedelic Stooges. Because remember, that's what the Stooges' original name was. Yeah. Danny's only interest during that trip was in the MC5. But the thing about the MC5 is that they'd started looking at the Stooges like a bit of a little brother band. So when Danny came to town, one of the dudes from the MC5 told him that he couldn't leave town without seeing the Psychedelic Stooges. The next day, Danny went to see them perform at a benefit concert for the Children's Community School at the Union Ballroom on the U Michigan campus. Mm-hmm. And he was blown away. And he, this is a quote from him from what he saw from that show. It was like Beethoven finally got here. It was so solid and so modern and so non-blues. How long did it take me to recognize this was something special? Five seconds. Yeah. That's the amazing thing about it is that, you know, Iggy Pop was saying, like, this is my version of the blues. And Danny Field's first impression was, there's no fucking blues here. No, but I get it. (laughs) And then he goes backstage to meet Iggy and the rest of the band. And he just, like, opens the door. He's like, you're a star. (laughs) All look up like, what? (laughs) Iggy, you're a star, boy. I'm going to get you on the first plane to New York City. You're going to be on Broadway for the end of the week. (laughs) (laughs) And Ron's like, who's this asshole? And Iggy's like, look, man, I'm straight. I know there have been rumors. Yeah, uh, Danny Fields told him, like, hi, I work for Electra Records. And Iggy Pop thought he was like a janitor or something. (laughs) (laughs) Because they were just starting out like you know it was you know very rare for a band to get attention that early on they'd been playing just like it was less than a year yeah so after seeing the show and talking to iggy danny called up jack holtzman and said electra Records should sign not only the mc5 but the psychedelic stooges as well right and jack holtzman's like great cool but we got to go see them Mm-hmm. So Jack and Bill Harvey, uh, the president of Electra, saw them perform October 8th at uh, the Fifth Dimension. And then that's when it finally happened. They finally got signed. They were opening for the Fifth Dimension? No, it was the venue called Fifth Dimension. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, they were not opening for the Fifth Dimension. I was about to say that. I was My brain was starting to get real confused real <laughs> fast. <laughs> So the MC5 got offered a $20,000 advance while the Psychedelic Stooges got an offer of 5000 Now, of course, both bands said, fuck yes, sign us right now. But there was only one condition with the Psychedelic Stooges. For God's sake, drop the Psychedelic. Just be the Stooges. For five grand? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, Electra actually had to call Mo Howard. <laughs> From the Three Stooges. And it, it must have been a weird afternoon for Mo Howard. He just picks up the phone, and and then they're like, hey, we got this band. You're, uh, is it okay that they're called the Stooges? And Mo Howard's like, who is this? <laughs> <laughs> and then they explain to him, he's like, no, it's not a comedy troupe. It's not a comedy band. They're just a band. And he's just like, yeah, sure. As long as they're not the Three Stooges. That's right. <laughs> who gives a shit? <laughs> 
Well, that's the funny thing is that the Stooges, uh, I think it was, was it Ron Ashton, like, actually made friends with Larry Fine? Yeah, the other Stooges. Yeah, the other, yeah, not Curly, just, yeah, made friends with Larry. <laughs> and, like, they, they would hang out sometimes. Oh, yeah, no, they spent time, like, a lot of time talking together, and, and, and Larry would always be like, you got any smokes on you? <laughs> he liked having him around. To bring some of those cigars in here, there's a nurse in here that's trying to keep me alive. <laughs> <laughs> But the problem the Stooges had was that even though they'd been playing together by this point for almost a year, their showtime was still clocking in at only about 20 minutes. <laughs> it takes a while to, you know, get enough material. It really does. I mean, you know, to have a full album within a year, like, it, it's rare. I mean, it happens. I mean, the I think the Strokes had a full album within, like, nine months or something like that. Like, it was real fucking fast, but they were practicing a lot more. Than <laughs> a little longer? <laughs> a little longer. <laughs> a little longer than like, you know, 20 minutes, like just getting high together and fucking around with a blender and then like, okay, that's good, guys. See you later. <laughs> <laughs> well, in other words, even though the Stooges had just signed a record deal, they didn't have enough songs to fill even side A of an album. So the Stooges started having high volume practices every night to develop a recordable, sellable sound. Even though rehearsals were still only 20, 20 minutes. minutes. <laughs> all it is. It's a sitcom. But, uh, but also, like, being in a band, like, sometimes you will have a rehearsal where you're in the same room together for three hours, but you actually play for only about 20 <laughs> or 30 minutes. What else are you doing? Hanging out. Oh, You're okay. hanging out with your buddies, having a couple beers, talking about this and that and whatnot. And then you go home and it's like, I forgot. What were we doing? <laughs> Meanwhile, Danny Fields was trying to find the right producer to transfer what he saw in Detroit onto an album, and he thought he'd found it in the Velvet Underground's John Cale, heard here playing the viola. Sacrificials remain, make it hard to forget where you come from, the stools of your eyes serve to realize fame. Choose again. And rope is refrain of the sacrilege recluse for the loss of a horse with the bows and the tail of a rat. Come again. Choose to go. Now, as anyone who sat down and listened to the Velvet Underground's first album knows, John Cale was a man who knew how to meld the avant-garde with straight rock and roll, especially when you consider that the clip we just played is on the same album as Run, Run, Run. Teenage bear said on the day I saw my soul must be saved. Gonna take a walk down Union Square. You never know where you're gonna find there. You gotta run, 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 run. Take the jacket too. Run, 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 run. Jim's a dead for you. Hey, what you do? Margarita Passion, they had to get her fixed. She wasn't well, she was getting sick. Went to sell her soul, she wasn't high, didn't know. 
think she could buy it. She run, 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 take the dragon too. Run, 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 tip to death and you. Say what to do. Another thing you got to remember is that while we know of the Velvet Underground's first album as a half-century-old relic of New York hipness, when the Stooges were signed, that album had only come out the year before. Really? Yeah, maybe two years before. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like, but less than five. Like, yeah. <laughs> like it was, oh, yeah. It was a super recent, super cool, super hip album. And it's fun. It's really fun to think about that. Like, because, you know, we, I'm sure we both heard Velvet Underground and Nico for the first time, probably in college, right? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and by that time, it was 40 years old. Um, but it's fun to think, like, in that time, like, John Cale was, like, a hip, cool, new, young dude that was, like, doing cool shit, where now he's, you know, God, all these people are godfathers now, but back then, all these guys were just kind of in the mix together. That's one thing I've noticed by looking up all these people. I'm like, oh, what, they were, like, 50 or something? <laughs> Oh, they've been in the record industry for 20 years? What do you mean you're 29? <laughs> it's, it's weird. It's very, it's very strange, yeah. But before Kale went into the studio with the Stooges, he wanted to get to know the band a little bit first. So he traveled from New York City to Ann Arbor, Michigan for a nice little visit to the Fun House. John Kale had fun at the Fun House. He yeah. did. Oh, well, except the only problem he really had with them was, like, there was no food ever. <laughs> was, he opened a fridge and be like, there's only Bud Lights in there or something. And he's like, hey, where's the food? And then, like, how do you eat? And Iggy's like, whatever, man. <laughs> Think I got some beans. Yeah. Like, I mean, that was another way for Iggy to get people motivated is that he would send out for food mm-hmm. or get everyone high. And then that's the only way to get it to work. And so John Cale got to see all that. John Cale was also weird in his own right. Yeah. I mean, he would just walk around <laughs> like half naked. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the funny thing. is it like it... black bikini briefs. <laughs> it is funny because like we're talking about John Cale like John Cale's the adult in this situation. He's the same fucking age as these guys. Like maybe a little bit older, uh, but not much older. Really not much. And he would still like, he would be drinking red wine and hanging out drugs maybe take him sometimes Mm -hmm. chasing after girls like he was just yeah he was just another guy yeah after seeing the Stooges live Kale totally got what they were going for and he was impressed enough to bring the band to New York City to hang out at Maxis Kansas City and Andy Warhol's factory which those were two clubs that were the absolute height of New York cool and it was at the factory that Iggy met an eternally bored German model come singer named Nico. And what costume shall the poor girl wear? To all tomorrow's parties. And be done from who knows Turn once more to Sunday's cloud. 
About Nico, I mean, she she was an actress. She was a singer. She was a songwriter. She did a lot in her lifetime. Yeah, and I and mean, Nico was like a true artist. Fellini discovered her. <laughs> she knew how to hang around the coolest people ever. Yeah, you know Andy Warhol, and just kind of because she was so striking, but also she had this like crazy exotic. German thing going on, which was very hot. Yeah. And she also sang famously with the Velvet Underground. Of course, and had two fantastic albums in her own right, Marble Index and uh, Chelsea Girl. Both fucking great albums. I mean, like, Marble Index, like... Marble Index. (laughs) You only need to listen to Marble Index, like, once. It's very depressing. It's very depressing. I'm glad that it's there. Of course. But I don't need to hear it again. It's like a a super depressing movie, like, where you just kind of only need to watch Irreversible once. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. Like, it's not your favorite movie. And if you want to watch it zero times, I totally respect that. <laughs> well, no, I mean, but Nico was, uh, I mean, she was a true fucking artist, and she had a beautiful voice. I mean, I know her voice is a, can be a bit of a uh, acquired taste, uh, but I fucking love Nico. Now that it's time. Now that the hour hand is landed at the end Now that it's real Now that the dreams have given all they had to lend I want to know Do I stay or do I go And maybe try another time And do I really have a hand in my forgetting. I'm a big Nico fan. Iggy was a big Nico fan for a long time, too. He, he actually said, he quote, I was one of the very few who actually liked her music. <laughs> <laughs> when, uh, when the Stooges did come, like they ended up coming to the Warhol factory and they just hung around with all these people and Iggy just immediately with the New York scene he just I mean they were already known because they just got signed and everything he just took to it very well yeah Ron and Scott and Dave <laughs> these are Midwestern boys yeah not so much uh, like Iggy is uh, they kind of just sat on the couch and like with their sunglasses on like sipping their drinks and just be like man this is we're leaving <laughs> yeah what the fuck are we doing here they didn't last very long there they just couldn't mingle in I mean even when they met uh, Andy Warhol again later in LA like they just uh, avoided him yeah and Iggy just went in for it he I, didn't care he wasn't he was fearless I mean honestly I would have been one of the Ashtons like if I would have <laughs> been in this situation like going to Andy Warhol's factory like yeah I would have just sat on the couch and said like I don't know what to say to these people what do we do <laughs> just stand there and we're posing and there's all these bright lights on me yeah it's like what am I gonna go talk to fucking Twiggy I don't know <laughs> <laughs> but but so Nico and Iggy met each other and immediately, it, it, Nico just being so enamored with this guy who's this amazing, like, performer. And Iggy's like, this woman is striking and beautiful and so experienced and much older, like 10 years older than him at the time. He mm-hmm. was 21. 
they just kind of got on together like almost immediately and they're just walking around holding hands <laughs> and everything and, and, and just kind of making out they were in the club scene together and everyone just kept doing like double takes yeah or spitting out their drink <laughs> she's with him <laughs> jessica rabbit is with roger rabbit of the music scene well I, the, they said i think it please kill me that nico's taste in men was what tragic poets tragic self-destructive poets because before iggy pop nico dated jim morrison yeah so she had a type and when the stooges went back to ann arbor to the fun house Nico went with them. Yeah, she did. She stayed there. Some people said a few weeks. I really think it was a few months. Mm -hmm. uh, she stayed there. But you know what? The other guys didn't mind her this time. Like They really didn't. Like She would make a lot of brown rice and vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> At least they got to eat. Yeah. And then she'd leave around like bottles of red wine for like good wine for yeah. them to drink. And they're just like, she's all right. And she stayed with, with Iggy. She taught him how to eat pussy. <laughs> And good for her. Good for her. And good for him. <laughs> and good for him. Yeah, and they, uh, hell, they made a little movie together, too. Like, I can't remember what it was called, but they went out into the field and uh, painted Iggy's face white and uh, made a nice little short film. Yeah, that was the evening of light song that she was doing, like, a little promotional, you know, this is before MTV mm -hmm. video that she did. She found, like, this uh, French guy, Francois de Menil. And he was really interested in making some sort of film with her. And she's like, you got to come to Ann Arbor because I'm here with Iggy and the guys. And they're going to be in the movie, too. And he's like, all right. You could find it on YouTube. It's just them, like, kind of walking around yeah. outside the uh, fun house. Uh, she's, like, all in white. And there's, like, mannequins everywhere. It's just very, it's very, <laughs> it looks like a, a horror movie slash European artsy film. Yeah. And it's fun, but I can only imagine, like, fucking Nico, like, this, like, German uh, art star suddenly finding herself in fucking Ann Arbor, Michigan. <laughs> 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 like, suddenly roommates with Iggy Pop. Like, it seems like such a fucking fantastic, like, it seems like such an out-of-this-world experience. Yeah, well, she she had a good time, and they had a great time together, but th there were times also when Iggy had to do his own thing. Like, she would call up Danny Fields and be like... Iggy's so mean to me. <laughs> Danny, Iggy's being mean again. Oh, no. And Danny's just like, what did you expect? <laughs> Everyone knew he was an asshole. Come on. <laughs> so after Nico left Ann Arbor, it was time for the Stooges to actually get to work on the album itself. And since they didn't really have the songs, but they were still fantastically talented musicians, Kale told them to just forget about the stage show and just concentrate on the album itself. And so Ron sat down and right out of the gate wrote the foundations for the two best songs on the album. One, 1969, you heard at the beginning of the first episode, but the other was a song that was so simple yet impactful that it became the de facto cryout song for punk bands for decades to come because it was the one song that fucking everybody knew. That song was I Wanna Be Your Dog. Face to face 
I love that song. Hey, you remember when I got you that vinyl for uh, Christmas like three years ago? You got me a first pressing of the Stooges' first record. Yes, it was one of the best gifts I've ever gotten in my entire life. Oh, thank you. That, <laughs> that song reminds me of it. Of course. Man, nobody can do Come On like Iggy Pop. Yeah. Come on! <laughs> and, like, it's just, it's the best Come On in rock and roll. <laughs> But as the Stooges were writing these fantastic songs, their seemingly endless stream of bad luck when it came to the actual business of being in a band began when Danny Fields got fired from Elektra. Yeah, well, you know, Danny is wonderful as he is. He is a wonderful man. Go watch the, the documentary Danny Says. It's on Netflix. Tells you everything you need to know about Danny Fields. It's fucking great. But he did get fired. Yes. Because he pissed off the vice president of Elektra, Bill Harvey, his daughter was getting married, and he made a joke around the office saying, like, that sounds like a shotgun wedding, if you ask me. <laughs> it's so fucking dumb. And Bill it's Harvey so <laughs> punched him in the face. <laughs> punched him. It's the dumbest shit. Like, all of these things, like, it's not, no one is fucking up on principle. No one's fucking, <laughs> like, everyone's just making dumbass decisions left and right. Because after Danny Fields got fired, the MC5 decided they needed to start fucking up for no reason as well. <laughs> oh, fuck Hudson. <laughs> yeah, oh, fuck Hudson's. <laughs> okay, so Hudson's uh, used to be a record chain store in the Detroit area, and they refused to sell MC5 records with the word motherfucker in the liner notes of the album. Just in the liner notes. Like, not even in the lyrics. Like, it was just in the liner notes, which is a, a dumb decision. Like, I think, like, Hudson's was definitely wrong here. <laughs> however. However, <laughs> John Sinclair and or the MC5 took out a full page ad in the Ann Arbor uh, Argus newspaper and Detroit's Fifth Estate that said, kick out the jibs, motherfuckers, and kick in the door. The store won't sell you the album on Electra. Fuck Hudson's! <sighs> With the Electra logo on it. <laughs> Like, oh, it looked like Electra was behind this. I know, I know. And they just did all this shit themselves. It's like, I understand that it sounds like a good idea at the time, and I understand putting up your fucking middle finger. You know, and but you also gotta understand as well, it's like these are dudes in their twenties. Like these are all dudes in their early twenties. They're not thinking shit through. But the thing is about it is that the MC5 were on a trajectory at this point. Like yeah. the MC5 should have been one of the biggest bands of the late 60s, early 70s. Oh, they were great. The MC5, everyone should know who the MC5 are. But the MC5 just never quite made it over the top because this little fucking stunt right here completely ruined any momentum that the MC5 had because they got dropped from Elektra. Because as soon as Electra heard about it, because Hudson's actually did have a pretty sizable chunk of the Midwest market, and Electra still had all those classical music records to sell. Like, Electra was still, and the only way that they could get their records back into Hudson's was to drop the MC5. So the MC5 got dropped from Electra, and they never recovered. But the one good thing that came out of all this mess was that even though the Stooges were now tainted by their association to Danny Fields and the MC5. Oh, don't worry. They're going to taint their own <laughs> reputations <laughs> very soon. Plenty of tainting to come. Their manager, Jimmy Silver, was able to negotiate a bigger advance. And the Stooges ended up with $25,000 in their pocket, which in today's money is almost 
$200,000. That's a lot of drug money. It's a ton. Of dr- <laughs> it's way too much money to give to a bunch of 21-year-old kids that really like drugs. So maybe the MC5 being dropped was good for the Stooges. They got to focus primarily on the Stooges now. Yeah, they did. I mean, it, it did. There are some unintended consequences. You know, the MC5 gets taken down a peg, but the Stooges go up a peg. And it really is one of those kind of weird what-if moments in rock and roll history. I mean, even though, like, the MC5 did end up being huge influences on all kinds of people in the punk scene later on, like, you kind of wonder how the fabric of, like, the American rock music scene would have changed had the MC5 reached the levels of, say, like, not even necessarily, like, a Led Zeppelin, but maybe, like, The Doors. Like, if the MC5 had gotten to that level, like, if the MC5 would have got just one number one hit i mean i think rock music would have changed yeah because i think they made one more album and then that was the end of it yeah that was yeah that was it and there was like a few live albums afterwards um you know fred sonic smith went out and married patty smith the other guys just kind of went off and did whatever (laughs) (laughs) we'll talk about that later we'll we'll talk about that yes we'll talk about that later it is like the, the mc5 if only they hadn't put out that fucking mm-hmm. ad, the whole uh, the, the whole were, fucking fabric of American rock music could have changed. I don't know about that, actually. There were a couple other things that, that also happened that added to it. it was, yeah, it was. I mean, that was definitely the that was the gunshot to the head. And then, well, also, Iggy did say in the Total Chaos book, he's like, yeah, too bad about the MC5. Also, there was like some photos circulating around with them and some kind of naked woman. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Ah. Yeah, so, you know, something that just didn't look good. Didn't you know, look right. Like, and, you know, and she's smelling the glove. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, as we said on the first episode, the MC5 has since apologized yes. for all of their misogynist behavior. So, the Stooges showed up at the Hit Factory in Times Square and got to the recording of their debut album. Now, one of the most famous stories about the recording has to do with volume. From what the Stooges said... They didn't think they sounded like the Stooges unless all the amps were turned up to 10. And John Cale kept trying to convince them this was going to sound really fucking bad. <laughs> that you're not supposed to do that. It's going to blow everything out and everything's just going to sound like mud. Why, why is there a 10 then? <laughs> you follow my logic? <laughs> Uh, The story goes that the Stooges staged a strike in the studio and refused to play until a compromise was reached to turn the volume (laughs) to nine. But John Cale said he doesn't remember any of this. You're wasting studio time. (laughs) That took... (laughs) Yeah, they only had... They had five days to record this album. Plus, they actually added another three when they realized they weren't done yet. (laughs) Yeah, John Kell later said, if there was a sit-down strike, it wasn't because they were angry with anything I said. More likely, they just wanted to have a beer. Most likely. Most likely. (laughs) But either way, this seminal album was recorded damn near live with no multi-tracking. And no song took more than two or three takes. Because, like I said, they only had five days to finish it. In fact, some album tracks, like this one, are the first take. Can 
gonna come over tonight Or can I come over tonight What do you think I wanna do? That's right Can I come over tonight? I said we will have a real cool time tonight. I said we will have a real cool time tonight. Now, as fucking great as that song is, to be fair, the lyrics to that song real cool time are mostly we will have a real cool time tonight can i come over (laughs) and part of the reason why that song and a few of the others sound so raw is because the stooges wrote a lot of them the night before for better or worse oh papers due by noon man (laughs) we gotta get cracking which they did at the Chelsea Hotel. Mm-hmm. Where eventually uh, Nancy Spungen ended up dying. Oh, that's right. Dying, yeah. murdered, killed. <laughs> so they show up to New York and they're like, ah, we're ready to record an album. We're good, man. Yes. <laughs> and then they're asked, oh, cool, but you got any more songs? And they're like, you betcha. <laughs> and then they You ran- bet your bottom dollar. <laughs> they ran up to the hotel and was like, fuck. Okay. All right. All right. Ron, you get on that guitar now and come up with some riffs. I'll be back in an hour of lyrics. Scott, get me a pen. Uh, this is a hotel room. They always have pens. And then they just rehearsed it a few times and bam, they had an album. Oh, man. And, and these songs, like, you can hear some of the subtle influences we talked about in the last episode, even in the frat rock songs, because what's the uh, the old line? I think it was like Steinbeck said, like, uh, good artists create, great artists steal. Uh, right. There was a lot of theft in, <laughs> <laughs> in this in this album, in this, which the Stooges totally admit to. Uh, but just for an example of like one of the things that kind of I think they did not admit to stealing this. This is just one of my own little things. This is only Marcus. <laughs> I know this is only me, <laughs> but I know there's probably like one other person out there that's going to listen to this and go like, yeah, I kind of hear it. <laughs> Let's listen to a comparison. Of the 1965 Strange Loves hit, I Want Candy, to 1969 by the Stooges. Good luck. It's all in. We almost actually almost got into a fight one day because I kept bringing Carolina into the office and be like, I think I got it this time. Listen again. I heard it like seven times in a row because I like to believe that you're right initially. And I appreciate, I definitely appreciate uh, your willingness to indulge me on this. (laughs) Then I kept getting mad. You should really put a couch in your office Because standing there awkwardly is weird Of course, since the Stooges were recording this album in New York Nico came by And she'd visit here and there She'd just sit in the control booth next to John Cale She'd just knit (laughs) (laughs) And then John Cale 
for some reason, he decided to wear a Dracula cape through the whole thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, he just seen Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, oh, I believe. Okay. He's the man. <laughs> and the Stooges did manage to get one track that was probably the closest to what they sounded like back in their drone days. That song clocking in at 10 minutes, 18 seconds is the Velvet Underground influence track, We Will Fall. Then I whisper to me You know, that was Dave's doing. Yeah, because uh, Jimmy Silver lent him a book by Swami Ramdas. <laughs> Swami Ramdas, huh? Holy man. Yeah, he yeah. Little, he was a guru, uh, and which sounded a lot of like one of his chants, like the Ram, Ja, Ja, Ram. Yeah. Ram, Ja, Ram, Ja. <laughs> because Dave Alexander was always into reading uh, mysticism and the occult. Yeah. So that was another Chelsea Hotel job to do. Like, Dave, you take care of the chant thing. <laughs> And he did. <laughs> he did. I Sounds mean, great. That, that's I fucking love that song. Uh, and that's the funny thing about the Stooges. The Stooges were really into the occult, at least around that time. But on the other hand, in 1968, 1969, fucking everybody yeah. was into the occult. <laughs> like it was oh, just one. It some was like ranch in California. I think they got into some weird shit too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was a fad. You know, that, that's the weird thing about the occult. It's like 68, 69. Yeah, it was just this strange, weird little fad. They kind of popped up and then, I don't know, disappeared again. Well, it came back in the 90s mm-hmm. and it came back again now. Yeah, well, it, well be we're, back. we're trying our best. <laughs> <laughs> but the funny thing is that some of the Stooges didn't even like the album. Cause they to them, hated it. They fucking absolutely hated it because to them, it didn't sound like the Stooges. You know, Scott Ashton, lamenting the loss of his beloved oil drums, later described every track outside of We Will Fall as, quote, drippy, dweepy little songs. Oh, that's a good alliteration, though. It's very good. Al- <laughs> <laughs> it's but, very oh. good alliteration. But yeah, uh, yeah. And what was more? The Stooges fucking hated John Cale's production on the album. And that wouldn't be the last time the Stooges believed one of their records was ruined post-recording. From what the Stooges say, they were just following orders. And some of them openly wondered afterwards if recording the album was even the right thing to do for the band, even after the Stooges were revered as legends. Well, you got to listen to the John Cale mix. It's on YouTube. It's cool. Yeah. No, I think it's pretty good, but it's very different from what they eventually came out with. Yeah. You know, Iggy Pop had to sit with Jack Holtzman to figure out how to make the band happy. Jack Holtzman said he got someone else to mix it. Iggy at one point said that he mixed it himself. (laughs) Conflicting reports on it, but both versions are on YouTube, and I really like the John Cale mix.
I like the John Kale mix a lot too. But if it's not the way the Stooges wanted it to be, then so be it then. Yeah. I mean, it's ultimately, it is up to the band what they want the whole thing to sound like. And honestly, I'm kind of inclined to agree with Scott Ashton when it comes to side two of the record. Because while the first four, maybe five songs are certifiable classics, yeah. the last three sound like demos. I mean, they're ideas of songs rather than actual tracks you'd put on an album. The one exception is possibly Little Doll, but that's only because Little Doll is pretty much just 1969 revisited. Little Doll I can't forget Smoking on a cigarette In my life a real queen Prettiest thing I ever seen uh-huh. You know, Iggy said he came up with Little Doll in the lobby at the Chelsea Hotel. And as we know, they were big fans of Pharaoh Sanders. Mm-hmm. And he said he took from uh, the baseline of Upper and Lower Egypt. Yeah, and I definitely uh, checked out Upper and Lower Egypt uh, after hearing that. And yeah. <laughs> hear it now i want candy (laughs) (laughs) of course recording the album was the right thing for the stooges to do because after they came out of the studio they had actual songs in addition to confidence which they didn't really have going in and so the stooges returned to ann arbor in 1969 feeling damn near invincible and iggy started taking the stage shows even further Iggy was starting to make himself bleed on stage. Yeah. Like, he started to open up his skin. In one show in Ohio, he used a broken drumstick and just raked it against his chest. Yeah. And then it just, like, the blood just went through his white shirt, made people nauseous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's try- he's just taking it further and further and further. And, man, you can see the scars on him now. Well, he wanted to get a strong reaction because that show I told you about in Ohio, uh, they played at a venue that could hold like hundreds, thousands of people maybe, and only like 12 to 15 showed up, and they were all just kind of there bored, so he needed to do go to the next level. Yeah, and, and that was, you know, when um, back when I was in bands, like that was always the philosophy. It's like you play the same show for five people as you do for 50, as you do for 500. It's like no matter who's there, they came to see a fucking show, so put on a good show every fucking time. And Iggy was taking it further than just blood. At one festival in Potawatomi Beach, Iggy, already bleeding after busting his lip with a microphone, started throwing up on stage <laughs> as Muddy Waters watched... From the wings in disgust. 
<laughs> Did he know? <laughs> yeah, he knew Muddy Waters was over there. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and in a scene that sounds like straight out of, like it's fucking straight out of Mad Magazine, Muddy Waters told his friend, that, oh man, those boys need to get themselves an act. And his friend replied, Muddy that is the act. But it was during this time of increased excess that Iggy Pop met Wendy Weisberg, who was mercifully 19 years old. Now, it was said that Iggy was obsessed with Wendy, but I think it would be more accurate to say that Iggy was obsessed with fucking Wendy, because Wendy was a virgin. That's true. He did meet her even before all this, before Bef he got the record deal. Uh, he met her when he was 19, and they were they were both in college, mm -hmm. but back then she was a White Panther's girlfriend, so, you know. One of the White Panthers, not just a guy named White Panther. It is a guy named White Panther. <laughs> Okay, so it's actually a dude named White Panther. All right. We keep having this. <laughs> the late 60s were a very confusing time. Yes, but he was too afraid to talk to her because, you know, she was so beautiful. Uh, but later he got that confidence after recording the album. So when he was doing that show in Ohio, you know, the one where he bled from the broken drumstick, mm -hmm. she came from backstage after the show and was like, what did you just do? <laughs> and then he was like, hey... What are you doing later? <laughs> and she's like, I'm with my boyfriend right now. And he said, well, um, uh, can I call you? <laughs> Eventually, he did worm his way into her heart. Yeah. But Wendy was adamant that she would not have sex before marriage. So to get through that little roadblock, Iggy fucking married her. He bought the cow. <laughs> She was very beautiful. She's not a cow. No. <laughs> but yeah, because they got together in May of 1969, and they were married by July 12th oh. of 1969. Uh. Just, it, it was just a few months. And and they got married right outside of the fun house. Mm -hmm. Jimmy Silver officiated the wedding as an ordained clergyman at the Universal Life Church. Which Henry Zabrowski is an ordained minister at the Universal Life Church now because he married us. Thank you, Henry. Thank you, Henry. So the MC5 came, Iggy's parents came, Danny Fields flew in for the wedding because the night before he got a phone call and he's like, you're doing what? <laughs> and he had to like rush over there to come to the wedding. And then Ron Ashton served as best man and was nice enough to leave his SS uniform in his closet, but he wore his Luftwaffe uniform <laughs> because he said they were soldiers. It's not political. It's different. Iggy is marrying Wendy Weisberg. And Jimmy Silver <laughs> is officiating. They were Jewish. <laughs> and it was very nice of Ron. That's Ron, a nice guy. He's not a Nazi. As we talked about in the first episode, Ron is not a Nazi. He just has a weird fascination with them. Yeah, yeah. And you know what they serve for dinner? What? Buckwheat casserole. Ugh. Because they were big into macrobiotics. Jimmy Silver was big into macrobiotics. That's right. And uh, the MC5 were so pissed. They didn't <laughs> even have dinner, so they got trashed. <laughs> Everyone had a great time at the wedding, especially uh, when Iggy's friends and his best man were making bets on how long the marriage was going to last. Yeah, Danny Fields said that... Uh, I think he was quoted as saying, uh, these fucking shoes are going to last longer than this marriage. Ron said a month, and he was the closest to everyone else. He won the pot. Technically, he shouldn't have won because he went over for going by prices Right rules. <laughs> Technically, nobody should have won. No one wins. 
And so Wendy moves in that day. She and her friends are moving up all her stuff up to the attic where Iggy was living so they could live together as man and wife. Mm -hmm. Iggy just sees all these boxes going up. And he's just thinking, how am I going to get out of this? (laughs) (laughs) And the guys in the band, they didn't like Wendy. They called her Potato Girl. (laughs) Potato Girl. I know exactly what they mean. What does that mean? (laughs) I can't explain it, but I know exactly what they mean. Really? Yeah. You know, some things are better laid to rest. Some, th- some things we don't need to get into. But. Yeah. but And Iggy had some complaints about Wendy as well. Like, for example, she liked to sleep at night. Mm-hmm. She didn't want him smoking pot and hanging around with his loser friends. Uh. So Iggy, like at night, he liked to stay up because he slept all day. So at night, he had to lock himself in his closet with his guitar and his amp trying to be quiet mm-hmm. and came up with Down on the Beach. Which eventually became... Down on the street. Exactly. Because the rest of the band was like, we don't go to the beach. (laughs) Why the beach? Plus, the song wasn't about Wendy anymore, so they had to change it around. Of course. So Iggy's already coming up with a second album while she was there. Yeah. And then he realized, I can't do both. It's either her or the career. So he just asked her to leave. You know, He's like, this could only be temporary, maybe. And she was sad about it. She understood, though. And they got an annulment because her parents were adamant about getting an annulment. <laughs> it was, oh, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she came from a wealthy family. Yeah. And according to Ron, but there's no actual proof of this, they hung up the annulment papers on the wall for ages. <laughs> and on it, it said the reason for the annulment was Iggy's homosexuality. <laughs> that the marriage was never consummated. <laughs> Well, he used that he used that one a lot, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> now, let me ask you. You read uh, Iggy Pop's autobiography, his 1986 autobiography. How many pages did he devote to this story? Four. <laughs> Four pages, and it's not a big book. It's. I mean, it is a healthy percentage of the book <laughs> of his three-week relationship. <laughs> So about a month after the annulment, the Stooges' self-titled debut was released. Now, to give you an idea of what the mood of the record-buying public was like at that time, Woodstock happened the same week. So while most people were looking to feel good about all the useless hippie bullshit that they all ended up betraying anyway by turning the planet into a flaming fucking shitbag, all right. <laughs> the Stooges were selling reality, which is a state of mind that a lot of baby boomers still have a hard time Grasping. Breathe. Fun. 
about no fun is that it's not about moping or wallowing rather it's exactly what Iggy Pop set out to do in the first place this was his version of the blues what was going on in his life and unlike a lot of people at the time Iggy Pop and the rest of the Stooges weren't going to ignore that shit because people weren't ready for the Stooges the first album sold terribly moved only about 32,000 copies in the same summer that the soundtrack for the fucking Let's All Congratulate Ourselves for Being Hippies musical, the fucking hair, hair sold three million. What? That same summer. It's not like, I mean, like the hippies, I mean, it was fucking mainstream. Yeah. Like it was totally mainstream. Fucking hair, three million, <laughs> Stooges self-titled debut, 32,000. Still going strong. <laughs> As Iggy put it. The Stooges were the counter to the counterculture, which even which wasn't even that much of a fucking counterculture to begin with. It was still fucking mainstream. Well, he said, like, I heard all this music around me and I thought, like, I got to attack. Yeah. Because that's what he did. He attacked. Like, he, he put it in your face. Yeah. I mean, not a lot of faces, unfortunately. <laughs> 32,000 only, but, you know, still did. Yeah, and it would take years before anyone would give the Stooges their due. But even though the Stooges weren't moving units, they found that they were suddenly the cool kids. Like, they went to New York City. Like, they were like, yeah, man, like, this is fucking cool. Like, everyone's loving the album. Everyone's all of, I guess, all of the right people are getting the album and are loving it and are giving all these guys all sorts of positive reinforcement. But that's not to say the Stooges were perfect. Even though they did make music that truly changed the world, the Stooges, and especially Iggy Pop, still did some real fucked up shit. Yeah, yeah. See, it was around this time that Iggy Pop, at the age of 23, started dating a girl named Betsy. Betsy was about 14. Oy. Now, the subject of teenage girls when it comes to rock and roll musicians, you know, from, I would say, the beginning of the genre up until about... Mankind. <laughs> well, up until about, like, the 90s is kind of when rock and roll musicians started saying, like, ah, we probably shouldn't be doing that no more. Uh, that's it, it came from everywhere. It really like did. Elvis Presley, Jimmy Page. Uh, Jerry uh, Lee Lewis married his 13-year-old cousin. Marvin Gaye met his second wife when she was 17. Yes. It's hard to say, like, all of them. Like, it's like, oh, you know, like, everybody did it, so it's cool. That's not a fucking excuse. This is a no. very thorny knot to untangle. And, and this is a hard thing even to talk about because, like, one of Iggy's ex-girlfriends, who was also very young, she said in interviews... Oh, it was different then. Yeah. It was different, which is something you can't always say. You can't always say those were the times. Can't always say that, no. And seeing how these men who were clearly having these women, uh, girls. Girls, yeah. Throwing themselves at them and them taking advantage of that. That is a tough thing to hear. Yeah, it's just that's something you got to face. You you can't ignore this shit. No, no. Like as me, like for example, like as an individual, I have to decide whether I want to listen to the music or... Or watch that show or that movie based on the information I have in front of me. Yeah. Well, was Iggy Pop a predator? No. Yeah, it's not like he's R. Kelly. But was he wrong? Yes. Very much so. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> very, very much so. Should yeah. he have gone to jail? Yeah. Possibly. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> Probably should have gone to jail for that. Yeah. And 
honestly, we're leaving it up to you to decide. Yeah, I mean, the, this yeah. is something that you, I mean, it's something that you have to think about with fucking damn near every artist. You know, you have yeah. you have to decide. I know some people walk out of the fucking room when David Bowie starts playing because David Bowie was also guilty of doing this shit. And we didn't play any Michael Jackson songs at our wedding. We requested <laughs> no Michael Jackson songs. Yeah, unfortunately, that now we have to do that. But our first dance was rock and roll with me. So, so uh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. It's, it's up to you to decide. It's very much up to you. I, I think part of why they were all so into it has to do with the fact that, I mean, like I said in the first episode, and like even Iggy Pop himself said, musicians, especially like then, they can be like children. I mean, their emotional fucking quotient is quite low. I mean, Iggy Pop's maturity level at that time was probably hovering around... 13 or 14 years old. I agree with that, but it's still not an excuse. It's not an excuse. It's not an excuse. No, absolutely. We're going to trademark, it's not an excuse. <laughs> Both wearing t-shirts right now, it's not an excuse. But, you know, when I wonder, like, why someone like Iggy would date someone so young, like, I can imagine that would be the reason, though. Yeah, I mean, that would that would be the reason. It wasn't necessarily a sexual thing. Like, it wasn't necessarily a predator thing. It wasn't about power. It was about oh, I can talk to this person. This person can talk to me on the same level where someone that's my own age will not put up with me being emotionally 13 years old. Right. Nico was 10 years older than Iggy. She didn't last very long. She did not last long at all. And the other part is, you know, it was like Iggy Pop's girlfriend said, even though it's not an excuse, it was socially acceptable for a man in his early 20s to date a teenage girl. I mean, Iggy had the approval of both of Betsy's parents. He actually went and asked them, like, is it cool if I date your daughter? I mean, it's partly because he wanted approval, but mostly because he didn't want to be arrested for transporting a minor across state lines. It's those two things. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, we're not justifying this at all, but as it is with the Nazi shit... While none of it looks good, it isn't as bad as it looks. In other words, like I said, Iggy Pop is not R. Kelly. He wasn't a predator. He was just super fucking scummy. Yeah. But while all this was going on, the Stooges were touring and trying to promote their debut. See, this was a weird time in rock and roll music, because a lot of established blues and soul singers were trying to recast themselves as psychedelic acts to keep up with the times. And when it worked... Oh, fuck, it worked. Yeah. Oh, it worked so well. It's like, just for example, like the Temptations went from singing pleasant but entirely unobjectionable songs like My Girl in 1965 to singing a song called You Make Your Own Heaven and Hell Right on Earth on an album called Psychedelic Shack just five years later. of hard work and sacrifice now you're standing at the crossroads of life to satisfy your personal wants will you do wrong or will you do right one thing you must admit and you know it's true the final decision is still up to you i'm telling you to let your facts for what is why 
oh, now I want to listen to Earth, Wind, and Fire. <laughs> well, we can do that when we get home. Yeah, I have a record. Yeah, of course. No, we've got, uh, we actually have quite a few Earth, Wind, and Fire records. <laughs> <laughs> but for every psychedelic shack, you had half a dozen other completely forgotten albums that now only exist in record collections and YouTube rips. Records like Chubby Checker Goes Psychedelic. So that's not great. <laughs> I like it. I think I think it's, it's pretty good. I think it's not bad. Like it's it's still, but it's still like it's the guy from the twist. It is you the know? guy from the twist. Although he did make it number one in the dance charts. Yeah. In two thousand eight. <laughs> really? Yeah. What for? A song. <laughs> I didn't write down. I don't remember. You don't remember, but what that kind of album kind of reminds me of, it, like it's the album that a record store employee is going to try to convince you is like a forgotten <laughs> classic, like and that they're going to have it for like sixty dollars behind the counter and it's like oh chubby checker goes like that it's like oh dude uh you don't even know they don't even make these anymore <laughs> no really they don't <laughs> no they don't it was released as i think there was a cd reissue in like the early 2000s i think maybe the late 90s uh but yeah chubby checker goes psychedelic is uh i mean it's out there and you know it's it's fine good on he, chubby checker for trying on, that you know good on chubby checker for trying what this psychedelic wave meant was that in 1970, you could see a bill with Chubby Checker and the Stooges. <laughs> cool. Which, <laughs> which must have been a fantastically weird fucking night. But, it, oh God, how that would have been so cool to see. The psychedelic twist. <laughs> <laughs> now, after the experience the Stooges had with John Cale in recording their debut, particularly in the mixing phase, the question of who would produce their second album loomed large. But finally, they settled on Don Gallucci, whose biggest <laughs> musical contribution up until that point had been playing keyboards on one of the Stooges' favorite songs when Don was just 15 years old. That song was Louie Louie. <laughs> Don Gallucci is also uh, Don. Uh, he's also from Don and the Good Times. Who were Don and the Good Times? They, they were a house band for like Dick Clark's uh, like afternoon show that he had. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. So the reason why I mention this is because when they asked, like, what do you think of Don Gallucci as a producer? Ron and Scott, who are obsessed with watching TV, were like, oh my God. <laughs> Don and the Good Times? Of course. Yeah, of course we want to get produced by Don and the Good Times. There's Louie Louie. Yeah, yeah, we like that too. Yeah, but he's on TV. Yeah. 
Now, when Gallucci was in his mid-20s, about 10 years after Louie Louie, he started working at Elektra Records, and he had agreed to produce the Stooges' sophomore record, but he thought that getting the band down on tape was going to be fucking impossible. Yeah, because Don Gallucci actually went to go see the Stooges. Yeah. He saw them play, and he calls up Jack Holtzman. He's like, yeah, uh, this band is a great, great act, uh, <laughs> I guess. We're never going to get this on tape, though. Yeah. And Jack replied, you're already working for us, man. <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah. Like, this is this is not an option. This is an assignment. Figure you're, it out. You're going to have to figure it out. But the Stooges had learned a lot since the recording of the first album. Instead of just sort of making it up on the spot like they'd done before, the Stooges were actually crafting and developing songs. And these songs would eventually make up one of the best albums, not only of the decade, but probably one of the top ten rock albums ever to be put on tape. That album was Funhouse. Yeah! Song it's so sexy. <laughs> <laughs> it's so fucking good. I can't believe he started writing that in his fucking closet. <laughs> no. I'm in here, Wendy. What is it? And so the Stooges flew to Los Angeles on Iggy Pop's 23rd birthday and began recording. Oh, funny little story. As soon as, like, the first day they got to L.A., Ron was walking down the street and he, I, I guess he was like jaywalking or something because there was a guy in a car who just slams on his brakes and he goes, you fucking asshole. <laughs> and then he looks and he sees it's John Wayne. <laughs> That's amazing. He got called a fucking asshole by John Wayne on his first day. <laughs> Sorry, um, continue. I remember seeing Clancy Brown in line at Starbucks once in L.A. That was pretty cool. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Now, during the day, Iggy would spend all the daylight hours at the Tropicana and just take in the sun and then start each afternoon with a tab of acid before going into the studio to record all night long. 
Oh, yeah. That was when they were at the Tropicana. Uh, Andy Warhol was staying there, too. And he went up to the Stooges. He's like, hey, come up to my room. Come hang out. And the rest of the band was like, no. <laughs> and Iggy just got up and was like, yeah, I'll hang out with Andy Warhol for a minute. <laughs> yeah, Iggy, Iggy Pop is definitely uh, a man that personifies the power of yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then takes two drops of acid. <laughs> Now, as we know, acid was nothing new when it came to the Stooges, but it was during this time that the Stooges, and Iggy in particular, started picking up habits that would come to define and sometimes destroy the next decade of their lives. See, the band took a break from recording in July to do a show in San Francisco at the new old Fillmore, and who should have been in the audience but a theater troupe called the Cockettes. And after the show, Iggy went to a party at the Cockettes' communal house for the first time, it said that he tried heroin. So this is in San Francisco, right, when they took their little break. And he was obsessed with this girl, Tina, there. And he's like, I want to have you. <laughs> and she's like, ah, you better come with us then because I'm not going with you. Good, it's smart. Yeah, so he went over there, and he said the whole vibe in the whole house, it, it was so weird to him. He himself, he actually has not admitted that he tried heroin then. Really? Yeah, but there are plenty of sources that say that he did try it. Even Tina herself said, like, I think we were the first ones who gave Iggy heroin. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, they might, I don't know, they might be telling the truth, but they might also just enjoy the coolness of being like, yeah, I introduced Iggy Pop to heroin. Exactly. <laughs> but whatever happened, either way, it got into his mind, right? Yeah. And that was when the band where they were at the Tropicana, everyone was getting to other things like John Adams. Uh, we haven't mentioned John Adams until now. Yeah. He was there at the Tropicana too. John Adams, he, he was an old friend of Jimmy Silver's. Uh, he was hired to be a roadie. Mm -hmm. And John introduced the band to Coke because he, he used to be a drug addict. He was in recovery for many years. And for heroin? He, for heroin, yeah. So, But he decided to get into Coke again. <laughs> <laughs> this guy, John Adams, he, they always called him the fellow. Yeah, ah, the fellow. Yeah, he had a lot of nicknames like Flaps, Hippie Gangsta, <laughs> Nichols, Peanut, The Sphinx, Goldie, The Fellow. I mean, if you have a lot of nicknames, then you might have been a drug addict. <laughs> yeah, no sober person gets nicknamed The Sphinx. <laughs> <laughs> Nichols. <laughs> And actually, around that time, yeah, like Jimmy Silver uh, had a kid. So he yeah. dropped out, said, I can't be manager anymore. And John Adams replaced him as the Stooges manager. That's right, because while Jimmy Silver was in L.A. with them, uh, he was getting more into macrobiotics rather than the rock and roll scene because he had that he, he had a toddler, Rachel. Yeah. Unfortunately, a hell of a lot more interested in encouraging the more debaucherous side of the Stooges than he was in advancing their career. And together, he and Iggy started heavily using cocaine in Los Angeles during the recording of Funhouse. And so, the transfer from psychedelics to hard drugs began. But even in the midst of this, the output of the Stooges was still phenomenal. Rather than the near, you know, one-and-done style of the debut, the Stooges recorded Funhouse on a straight night after night grind, playing take after take after take until they finally came up with something they liked. I wonder how they got to work so many long hours. 
all the time. <laughs> and, you know, those of you who are absolutely insane about the Stooges, you probably already know that every single one of those takes was released a few years ago on a seven CD box set. Yeah, well, it's all on Spotify now. Yeah, because the box set, when it originally came out, I think cost $600, Jeez. $500. Wow, yeah. It was, yeah, I mean, it was a seven CD box set, extremely limited edition. Uh, but yeah, but now, you know, everyone can hear it. Yeah, and, and you know why they had to work harder on these takes, though? Because first, okay, first they show up, and it's a really nice studio. Like, Jack Holtzman was like, no expense spared. Yeah. But the band were like, no, this is not going to work. I mean, what's up with all this baffling stuff over here? <laughs> baffling? What, 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 what do we need that? We got to get rid of all this soundproofing. We got to make it like a live show. We got to make this room sound like shit. Yes. So they got all, like, they got rid of all the rugs and pillows, all that expensive shit that Jack Holtzman bought. They just threw it out. <laughs> so Don Gallucci just let them set up the recording room just the way they liked it so they could do their live performance. So it's kind of like they, they wanted to show what they did on stage. Yeah. So Iggy actually even used a handheld mi microphone so he could dance and convert around just singing the tracks into it. They, they didn't even care. Like the amp was in the room. So the noise or the instruments would bleed into one another, but they didn't care because they wanted it to sound raw. And it did. It, it, this should not have worked. Like, yeah. <laughs> like Once again, Iggy. Yeah, like it, it really should not have worked. Now, if you so choose, you can go check out that seven CD box set on Spotify. You can listen to 14 different takes of Down on the Street. You can listen to 28 takes of Loose, 15 takes of TVI. And while I haven't listened to all of it, I've definitely listened to more of it than I should have. <laughs> like, like I definitely spent more. I def yes, I Listen to more than I should have. Are you okay? <laughs> but, you know, there are some actual gems to be found on there. See, if you listen to the raw versions of these songs, you can hear the influences a little more clearly. For example, if you listen to take five of TVI, TVI, which uh, was originally titled See That Cat, ah. you, <laughs> it's the first line of the song. Good change. <laughs> well, you can hear that song better for what it is. In my opinion... TVI is the Stooges doing the MC5 better than the MC5 could do themselves. You know what TVI stands for? Twat vibe. <laughs> Twat vibe I. <laughs> that that means like when you want to give someone the TVI, you're mm -hmm. interested in having your twat vibing. <laughs> Look at me. Look at me, Marcus. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was uh, Kathy Ashton. She was the one that came up with that, right? Yeah, Ron and Scott's uh, sister. Yeah. She and her friends, they would come to shows all the time, and they'd always be like, I got a TVI on him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, the Stooges, during the recording of this album, they didn't lose their experimental edge. They still did some real weird shit with this album. On the almost eight-minute title track, the Stooges brought in a saxophone player named Steve McKay. Steve McKay's work was 
fantastic on this album, and it prefigured later punk and no-wave acts like James Chance and X-Ray Specs. Absolutely right. I could. I remember hearing the saxophone on uh, "Oh, but Oh, Bondage Up Yours." Yeah, you know, it, it very much like is extremely, extremely influenced by that. You know, uh, the uh, player in X-ray specs, the saxophone player, she was fifteen. Whoa, I think like fifteen or sixteen. Yeah, because you know, X-ray specs only had that one album. Yeah, and so yeah, she was like, "I got to go back to school now." Oh, <laughs> <laughs> <All> Lisa Simpson. <laughs> doing the saxophone work he was doing heavy drugs with them too yes he was just like laying on his back with his saxophone playing as best he could <laughs> well i mean really trying <laughs> really on drugs because uh, he was worried that he didn't know if he was going to be any good uh, iggy pop actually saw him perform before and then called him up and said come to la and steve mckay was like well i got college exams <laughs> next week but you know what you know what i'll do them later <laughs> i will uh, that's fucking insane that you could just that that shit just used to happen. You yeah. know, it's like, OK, yeah, you're now you're on one of the best rock records of all time just because you happen to play one weird little show in college. But even though the title track and the literally acid fueled freak out L.A. blues showed how fucked up the Stooges were willing to get the album, which clocks in at no more than eight tracks, is full of seminal rock songs like Loose. Oh, look out. Oh! I took a ride with a pretty music. I went down, baby, you can tell. 
unfortunately, Funhouse is kind of the end of the free will and good times for the Stooges. No. <laughs> All that drug shit, like, starts off real fun. Always starts off real fun. It's like, man... I got this under control. I don't know what everyone's <laughs> talking about. Man, what are they talking about? Like, everyone's talking about, like, getting addicted and, like, getting into, like, the, the depths of despair. Nah. We just recorded this great fucking album. Everything's going to be great. From now on, I can just keep doing drugs and... I can quit when I want to. <laughs> well, although the Stooges were about to morph into the absolutely legendary live band they've come to be known as now that they truly had the songs, that reputation came, as all things do... With a price. And that is what we'll cover in the Stooges Part 3. And what we have with this episode, as with every episode, just go to my profile on Spotify and you'll find a playlist of all the songs that are available on the platform so you can maybe hear some new music that you haven't heard before. Even Chubby Checker goes psychedelic. No. Psychedelic, no. Is that down there? Why is it not on there? Because the record company that owns the rights has not thought to put it online and submit it to Spotify. I'll make a call. Yeah, you you make a call. You let them know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We'll see everybody uh, next week. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye, Victoria. (laughs) Goodbye. Goodbye.
bilen Sätt du i bilen When you pack me Sätt du i bilen When you pack me There's a fire There's a fire Yeah, Inside